Live from York, this is The Late Show with Christopher Valves. Good evening and welcome. Tonight we're going to be talking about bringing history to life with Kathy Murphy, education advisor, school governor and Viking living history reenactor. So join us as we explore the role of reenactment groups in supporting history education, British values before 1066, and the wisdom of the Vikings. Live from York, this is The Late Show with Christopher Vowles on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Hello everyone and welcome to my new show, now at the REM sleep-friendly time of 8pm on the last Sunday of the month. For those listeners who remember my former Wednesday night late late shows of early 2021, I'm hoping to bring you a similar mix of thought-provoking interviews with voices from across the education sector, the occasional crisis management show, a mix of features on my favourite topics in the arts and humanities, possibly some more chess, a small dose of politics, and some utopian ideas on wisdom in education. So I hope you'll be happy with what I have planned for you in the coming months. For those of you who are new to my shows, it's probably worth me giving you a brief insight into my teaching background and my philosophy of education before we get started. I have been teaching secondary aged English students for about 15 years now, after a brief stint in university teaching while completing some extended postgraduate work on the alternative arts press in Britain and Ireland in the period between 1959 and 1999. I took my first job as an English teacher in a London state school that was to become the first academy school in the country by the end of my NQT year. Here, I taught English and more rarely drama students in key stages three to five, did some A-level moderation for AQA, then subsequently moved on to my current school after five years. I now work in a rather unique independent boarding school in Yorkshire, where I lead a small but wonderful group of English teachers as head of English and support an excellent team of sixth form tutors as head of year 13. I also serve as a governor at a small rural primary school on the North York Moors. When I'm not directly involved in evaluating teaching and learning in these different contexts, I like to discover new poets, write about ecological disaster fiction, and look for surrealist debris on the beaches of the North Yorkshire coast. My six-year-old daughter, when she's not making My Little Pony Stop Go animations, is gradually coming to appreciate some of these pastimes too. Having spent the past 15 years being told how to impart knowledge to students and develop core skills of reading and writing in my subject area, I'm keen to offer these programmes to you as an opportunity for us to think about the wisdom-rich curriculum to explore perhaps what such a thing might mean. 
to reflect upon why the English education system seems to have so markedly turned its back on education for wisdom in the 21st century, and to imagine new ways in which we might re-establish the connection between education and wisdom. For me, at least, teaching and learning is not just about passing on a body of knowledge. It is about cultivating good judgment through a specific type of experience in a specific type of environment to attain a form of wisdom that many in our world seem to lack at present. The evidence is almost everywhere we choose to look. During my autumn term sabbatical from Teachers Talk Radio, I've found wisdom in the shows of my TTR colleagues. If you haven't heard Sobia Iqbal exploring the freighted concept that is empathy with her guest from the Empathy Week project a few Sundays ago, then I thoroughly recommend you find it on the Teachers Talk Radio catch-up service. In the same way, Alex Wright is currently looking at some big ideas on his Wednesday Late Show. He seems to believe that teaching is grounded in the teaching of analogies. I challenge anyone to counter this view without resorting to an analogy. I've been trying to drill some wisdom into my year 13 charges at work, and they have gained a great deal, I feel, from receiving visits from one of the few remaining concentration camp survivors, from workers on the English prison estate, and from a former leader of the Green Party. There is certainly wisdom to be had if we are prepared to look for it. Now, I'm pleased to say that wisdom is one of the central topics for our discussion tonight. Cathy Murphy is the education lead of the Vikings UK Reenactment and Living History Society, an education advisor for Cambridge County Council and a school governor as well. She spends much of her time traveling up and down the country in full Viking attire, participating in close hand-to-hand -hand combat with her peers, enthralling members of the public and key stage two children alike with her knowledge of Viking culture and society and serving as an advocate for public understanding of the Vikings and the contribution that they have made to forming the character of the people that came over to pillage our coastal towns and liked them so much that they decided to stay. Good evening, Cathy. Are you able to join us on the line now? Just getting Cathy's line connected. Um, while we're doing can you, can you hear me now, Christopher? Perfect. Yes, we can hear you. Good evening. Brilliant. <laughs> Thank you very much for joining us. That's a pleasure. I hope I've done justice to your background in my brief introduction. Is there oh, any... you, you certainly have. Are, are you surprised? You impressed even me. Uh, it sounded good. <laughs> have I missed anything out that you'd like to share with our listeners? Um, I, I think perhaps the only thing um, which might be worth saying is that as well as doing the reenactment side of things, which is a sort of weekend based event, which is more targeted towards guest families and, you know, people who are coming to a place to experience Viking history. I also take that into classrooms as part of a, um, a, a day job, if you like. And um, there are many of us in the Viking society that do the same, go into schools, visit, visit classes, take objects and artefacts, costumes, so that children can get a real hands-on feel for the Viking period um, in their own classrooms. 
Fantastic. Well, I'm hoping that we'll be able to explore three topics with our listeners this evening. And if you have a question or a point you'd like to put to either myself or Cathy this evening, listener, do feel free to call us or text us with your points and we'll get you on the air. So in the first section of the show, Cathy, I thought we'd explore your work with the Vikings UK and the value of reenactment in supporting learning. That will probably take us through till about half past eight where we'll break for the news. And in the second part of the show, we might explore this idea of British values in education and what they might have looked like before 1066. Sure. We'll then take a second news break after that before closing with this idea about Viking wisdom and what it might offer us today and how that might fit into this idea. I'm still developing really of the wisdom rich curriculum. But let's start with the Vikings UK. Could you tell us something about your work with them, Cathy, and the value of this work in supporting history learning? Yes, certainly. So um, the, the Vikings UK is a, um, the largest Viking reenactment society um, in the UK. There are um, other societies as well that you may well, uh, you may come across. Um, we've all got the same thing at the sort of core of our purpose, which is to uh, bring history to life for people to uh, many of us enjoy exploring uh, details of costume and weaponry and objects. Many of us enjoy the, the craft side of um, re reproducing, recreating things as authentically as we can. So what we're trying to do is by delving deep as, um, into not, not just the, 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 the sort of combat side of things but in in, in in really getting to grips with the um the the life the objects people had we can explore things like the way things were used and really try to get to grips with the um the technology that was available at the time and of course that's a it's a fascinating um hobby uh there are many different branches of craft to explore many different um, areas of skill that people develop and um, many of us uh, when we sort of immerse ourselves in in these things not just at the weekend events that people come to visit but it's often a you know a, a, a people are practicing crafts making things ex researching things um, through the uh, through the week through the winter months as well and so when, when you come to a reenactment event you're not just meeting somebody dressed up in a um, in a nice costume, or you're not just meeting somebody who's out fighting a battle. You're you're meeting somebody who's who spends, you know, a proportion of their free time exploring um, the past, making things, building things, um, and uh, exploring how people in the past might have lived. So, I always say to people when when they come and look at what I'm doing when I'm at a reenactment event, just, you know, come and, come and have a sit down. Or if it's children um, and I'm making something, I, you know, hand my tool over to them if it's safe to do that or give them the, the object that I'm making for them to try and work out what it is. So you can sort of engage people um, that way by, um, you know, by, by inviting them to come and sort of participate in what you're doing a little bit. So... I think that's that's one of the things which reenactment events do that perhaps you wouldn't get from a um, a visit to a museum, for example, um, mm. because there you can you can see an object, you can 
read about an object, but um, at a reenactment event, you can obviously it's it's a re, it's a replica. It's not a, a the original object, but you can hold something. You can feel what it would have felt like. You can touch the you know the fibers. Somebody's spinning. You can you know you can really connect with um, the sort of lives that our ancestors would have would have had. So. For, for children, that opportunity, I think, is second, well, second to none, really, as, uh, if you're thinking about enabling children to connect with the lives of people in the past. Um, yeah, I mean, I've, I was fortunate enough to be able to take my, um, she was then, five-year-old daughter to the reenactment event that took place at Whitby Abbey yes. the summer just passed, and she was as fascinated with the the clothing that some of the other children who are obviously yes. um, part of the Viking project as well, wandering yes. around the campsite, were wearing as much as the soldiers who were fighting each other in the ring. Absolutely. And yeah. just looking at the layers of fur and things they were wearing on a particularly hot day, um, she, she was quite struck by what kinds of lives the Vikings lived in their tents while they were making their food and making their uh, Iron work, iron work. Yes, yes, yeah. To take out into the field of battle or into the fields. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's that's one of the things again that you get at a reenactment event, um, because many of many of the those of us who participate um, in in reenactment go. It's a family activity. Um, some people, it's not a family activity, and you know, people of all different ages and walks of life participate. So there's a range, but. Um, I've been taking my two children since they were, well, since they were born, basically. I think my daughter first attended an event, an event at about six weeks old. Um, and uh, um, my son was slightly older just because of when he was born in the year. But um, my daughter was probably one of the children running around that, um, that was, was spotted um, at mm-hmm. Whitby. So uh, it's, that, it's that connection, isn't it? It's that connection with somebody else of a similar age, um, and the the children can can you know the visiting children can see oh this is this is real this isn't just something in a book or something that somebody's um, you know made made uh, photographs of or pictures of these are these are people this is what you know you can get a bit of an insight into into what it what it would really have been like um, to wear those clothes or to eat that food or you know you can. Um, really get a, a smell and a, and a feel, literally feel the wool that people are wearing or the linen underneath, and um, you know, look at a look at a pair of shoes. Shoes always seem to fascinate people for some reason. That um, I think because the shoes superficially look so similar mm. to the sorts of shoes that we wear today. You know, some have still got laces, or you know, there's a a fold over flap that will hold the shoe down. Um, but people can't quite get their heads around the fact that this is made of completely made of leather and it's hand sewn and it's um, but you know yet all the reenactors there are all wearing these hand sewn um, boots that um, you know people can't so you know it's one of those things we're just so close so near yet so far if you like you know it's it's so sim- similar uh, looking but there are those um, you know differences that make it. Um, just you know jar with people and people ask very detailed questions about shoes because they you know because they are so similar i think to to modern day things yeah mm, shoes are in many senses i suppose just a 
two-volume biography, aren't they, of the person that wears them? Absolutely. Absolutely, they are. Yeah, and it's um, it's one of those things you can connect with. Um, another thing um, that I find fascinating, again, we're, we're, I know we're going to talk about British values and uh, respect for people later on, but um, one thing that I always make a point of explaining um, at reenactment events or, you know, when I'm working in schools is that... Um, as soon as we became Christianized in our country, women started covering their heads. Now, that's not to say that pagan women weren't covering their heads, because if you're working in a, um, in a smoky house, um, tending a fire, then it's going to make most sense to, to cover your, your hair and keep it out of the way of your work. Um, but as soon as people became Christianized, then it was an expectation that you covered your hair. And of course, as is always the way, um, women of different sort of social, with different sort of social um, status would do that in different ways. So um, uh, a sort of uh, a churl's wife, a farmer's wife might just wrap a scarf around her head and tie it at the back to keep her hair off, off her face and, and do the sort of, um, fulfill the requirement to to sort of humbly uh, cover her hair. But then when you start to look at some of the later Anglo-Saxon period stuff, the sort of 9th, 10th century people, they quite elaborate headgear they're wearing. And it always looks remarkably similar um, to Muslim women today um, wearing hijab. Mm. So because, again, you're trying to cover your hair, you're covering your hair for the same reason because you don't want people to think you're showing off in front of God, you're being humble before God. So I always make that um, that comparison that it's really relatively recently that women in our country have stopped covering their hair um, as, a, um, as, as, you know, as part of a, a religious observance um, thing. You know, I suppose the the tail end of that tradition was people would always wear a hat to church. Um, mm. And my grandmother was still doing that, you know, so it's, it's, it's the uh, tradition, which was very, very similar uh, to the way that um, people of other religions still uh, sort of go about their daily life. Um, that's just sort of tailed off in our country. Um, I think it's, it's just useful for people to see that there are these connections, you know, um, between dress and uh, traditions and some of the, you know, underpinning reasons for those things. Mm. And if we think about the different areas of the villages that you set up on some of these reenactment events, what kind of range of trades or activities or crafts might somebody see if they were to visit one of those? Yeah, well, I think I I would always recommend if if somebody is able to get to one, uh, if you're a teacher and you're able to get to one, um, ideally before you do a topic on Anglo-Saxons or Vikings or whatever, take, take a camera um, and tell the reenactors, I'm a teacher, I'd like to have a photograph of X or Y, and they will make sure that you get it. You know, and reenactors are um, people, well, people are more nowadays saying, oh, do you mind if I take a photo? No, that's why we're here. You know, we, we're happy to be photographed. So the sorts of things that you might be able to see uh, depends very much on the size of the event. Um, mm. The event that you came to, Christopher, was a, um, a what we call a major event. So that that was people from across our, across the country being invited to um, 
to come and uh, to come and join in. So mem- our members are from across the country. Um, other events um, might be four or five um, tents set up, might be just a local event as part of a local celebration or something. Um, but some, you know, at a big event like Whitby. Um, there will be multiple different crafts. So you might find people doing um, textiles. So there's a, um, a, a big sort of a, a big group of crafts including included in that. And I'm just trying to think who the sorts of people who were there. Certainly there were people spinning wool. Um, there were people spinning linen. Uh, and then people um, carding the wool. So that is combing it to get all the dirt out of it before it's spun. You might be lucky and find somebody who's doing some dyeing um, at an event. And that would be, um, you know, they brought vegetable matter to to boil up the wool once it had been spun to get a colour into it. Often people will bring along, even if they're not doing um, any dyeing at the event itself, they'll bring along a range of different colours that they've dyed previously. So um, you can see from these um, lovely rainbow wool strings, if you like, of all the different colours that people have made, you can see, um, you know, the Vikings and Saxons really weren't stuck in dull, beige, brown, dark, grungy colours. They they were able to make um, some beautiful beautiful bright colours that the trick with dyeing is that if you're wealthier then you can afford the mordant or the fixative to keep the colour bright in your clothes and if you're not so well off and you can't afford that mordant then your clothes might be bright for a little while but then they're gonna dull down as you as you wear them as you wash them and so on um, mm. so you know you can see the range of colours um in in those and then um if you were lucky you might have seen somebody doing some tablet weaving or weaving some cloth um again it depends um who's there tablet weaving is making a thin ribbon um little little cards to to turn different colors of wool to the top and make usually diamond patterns that sort of thing and those thin strips of woolen ribbon about an inch wide usually um, are used to decorate edges and and um, uh, secure hems and so on to make things a bit more robust um, as well as doing a bit of showing off vikings and saxons love showing off very mm, so, much so you no know, decorate you know you decorate anything if it, if it moves dec- if it's if it doesn't move decorate it you know uh, yeah. strategy so um alongside the textiles i thought well i was doing some um, wood carving i think at whitby sandwich and there will have been other people doing similar crafts to that i was making a little um little box with a uh, with a um made out of oak made out of six pieces of wood um with car- carving decorated into the top um and there were um, there'll be other people doing um craft uh, around leather work or of course, we mustn't forget the uh, people doing cooking, bread making, lo- lots and lots of different um, different sk- uh, skills on display, and you know people doing um, people doing di- different activities. Um, I'll tell you one thing: I didn't see, and I've never seen at a Viking or an Anglo-Saxon living history event. I've never seen somebody acting in the role of what we consider today to be the school teacher 
Is no. that because education was done on a kind of master apprentice basis? Yeah, I, and I think probably we, we shouldn't even think of it as formally as that, really, Christopher. I think the idea of um, uh, people being literate um, is, uh, is, is is very difficult to, to pin down um, before the Christian period. Um, that the, the likelihood of people being able to carve runes we think was was pretty slim. Although we do know that there were individuals in the Viking period who were capable of carving runes, um, so you know they must have had some schooling um, mm. in the, in their way. It wasn't you know you didn't have to go to the equivalent of a of a scribe, a rune carver, to get something done. There were ordinary people doing pretty ordinary things and writing about it. I um, don't know if we've got time to go down this little alleyway, but there's a um, one of my favourite places in the whole country is Mays Howe up in Orkney. Um, it's actually a Neolithic chambered burial tomb. Um, but um, at one point in the, in the early 12th century, uh, some Vikings got caught in a storm and needed somewhere to shelter. And so they broke into this this Neolithic tomb, broke in through the top of the of the mound. And basically they hung out in May's Howe in this uh, in this burial tomb for a while, sheltering from the storm. And whilst they were there, they they covered basically basically covered the inside of this tomb with Viking Viking graffiti. Gosh. So it's runes. Um, some of it is poetic. Some of it is fairly quite well, it's quite scandalous, really. Um, I won't, you know, it's not fit to repeat some of the things that were written there, um, you know, commenting on the local women and so on. Um, but, uh, you know, that those people, um, even though it's sort of right at the end of the it's still Viking period in Scotland, if you're in the 12th century, um, mm -hmm. it. it those people were able to carve those runes themselves, so they they must have had some some schooling. Um, but as far as as far as general literacy goes, I think you know it was very very limited. Um, people were learning how to farm the land. They were learning um, uh, martial skills, um, and they were learning that very much as they grew up through their their childhood. So mm. it was it was. We know that there was a, um, a a group of of young people called um, Frostry, which is like our foster children. So there was an idea that you would send your child off to be a Frostry um, with a um, sometimes a relative, sometimes a family friend. So they would sort of go away from home to learn their trade or whatever. But thinking of that as an apprenticeship, I think, you know, is a bit too, we, we start, you know, I, if somebody says apprenticeship, I start thinking of medieval guilds and things like that, which, mm. um, you know, it wasn't quite that, um, wasn't quite that sophisticated, I don't think. Um, but, uh, yeah, cer certainly, um, you know, when, I, when I'm working in schools and I say there was no such thing as a Viking school, there's always a great cheer goes up from the children. Um but uh, but then you tell them what they would have been doing instead, um, uh, which was, you know, collecting the water and guarding the sheep and 
we- weeding the crops and some of them start to realise actually coming to school is, um, is, is a bit of a let off compared to all that hard work, you know. <laughs> it's not such a bad life after all, is it? Well, absolutely. <laughs> Brilliant. That's a fantastic outline for us of the work that the Vikings were involved with in reenactment. Yes. We're going to go to the news now. And sure. then once we come back from the news, we'll pick up this theme that we've started exploring about this nature of notion of who the Vikings might be and how they have helped shape who the British were for certainly a period of time. Um, and perhaps looking at the connections between Vikings and this idea of British values. So we'll move on to that topic straight after the news. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.witherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. Are you looking to take your phonics practice forward? Then Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised is the programme for you. Created by two schools with an excellent track record in phonics, Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised will help all children become readers and ensure no child is left behind. The programme offers complete support for your phonics teaching, alongside classroom resources and fully decodable readers from Collins Big Cats. To find out more, Follow at Letters Sounds on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram or join a free briefing by visiting littlewondlelettersandsounds.org.uk Whatever learning looks like this year, bring lessons to life with Nearpod. An exciting new addition to the Renaissance family, Nearpod offers real-time insights into student understanding through interactive lessons and videos, gamification and activities, all in a single, easy-to-use platform. To help kickstart the new year, we're offering all primary and secondary schools in the UK and Ireland full free access to Nearpod for the whole spring term. So, no matter what 2022 brings, Nearpod makes switching between in-class and remote teaching simple. Visit www.renlearn.co.uk forward slash Nearpod and sign up for your free trial today. If you're listening to this, then we know we share one thing in common, a passion for the type of outstanding education that every child deserves. That's what makes us the leading provider of specialist education and care. We need people like you to help us achieve even more. With us, you'll be given all the resources and support you need, offered a clear path to career progression, and be rewarded with some of the best salaries and benefits the industry has to offer. We are with a Slack Group. If you'd like to find out more, we'd love to hear from you. Visit www.witherslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers and be part of our future. This is Teachers Talk Radio and this is Teachers Talk Radio News.
A report in The Independent makes it clear that Ofqual's chief regulator believes that changes to the 2022 examinations will not advantage more able pupils. As a result of the disruption caused by the pandemic, pupils in England and those students sitting GCSE from English exam boards will be offered a choice of topics in some GCSE exams. In a speech to the Sixth Form Colleges Association conference earlier in January, Chief Regulator Joe Saxton said the release of advanced information on the kinds of topics pupils will see in their exams would not advantage higher ability pupils. This advanced information is due on February the 7th and is being released to help students focus their revision to answer questions carrying more marks. It will not be provided for simpler one or two mark questions. In a statement, Ms Saxton said that she hoped that the advanced information will mean students who suffered the most disruption or those who are less able may gain confidence to tackle elements of the paper that they might not previously had the confidence to try. In response to the comments, Jeff Barton, General Secretary of ASCOL, said, Many school leaders will have legitimate concerns about how the advanced information about exam content has been put together and how helpful it is likely to be to their students. Radio 1 presenter Vic Hope has returned to a former school in Newcastle to open its new wellbeing centre. In a report on the ITV News website, it is described how Ms Hope opened the centre at Dame Allen's in Fenham by stating, it's been important to me in my work to raise awareness, destigmatize, and signpost resources dedicated to nurturing the psychological and emotional well-being of our young people. And I am so proud that the Dame Allens is clearly doing this work so well too. Ms Hope is a human rights activist and Amnesty International ambassador, and has spoken candidly about mental health in the past. The Snug at Dame Allens offers counseling, psychotherapy, and special educational needs support and provides a dedicated place where students feel safe, heard and understood. With mental health and well-being now a key focus for many schools, Ms Hope praised the efforts made by schools to support pupils in this way. The news website Monitor reports on lessons the continent of Africa can learn about investing in education. It states that the universal lesson is that countries can no longer ignore the unprecedented learning crisis facing the continent. The pandemic has revealed what the article describes as alarming inequalities in accessing inclusive and quality education. The issue was discussed by leaders at the Global Education Summit, co-hosted by Kenya and the UK in London last week. The continent is facing some harsh realities and the summit launched a drive to increase national budget allocations for education, with greater emphasis on improving learning outcomes. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio Weekend News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week we're going to take a look at teaching online. Marmite comes to mind when I think about teaching online. I actually like it, but it's my job and I'm surrounded by gadgets to assist me. A lot of teachers hate it. If you think about it, for 90% of the current population of teachers, delivering a lesson online is something they've not even been trained in. They signed up to be in the classroom with a group of pupils. I'm not going to go into the depths of the delivery platform. That's normally a choice that's already made for you by technology leaders in schools. I'm going to give you a couple of free tools that work in a browser, so don't need installing, and can be used for engagements in the classroom and easily adapted to use online. First up, we all love Kahoot. Did you know you can set a Kahoot to be self-paced rather than live? Simply click the Assign button, 
and you have an instant self-paced quiz for a homework, a starter, or a progress check. If you need to take it online, share the link, and off you go. If you use lots of YouTube clips and websites, check out Wakelet. Share collections of links in a meaningful way, for free. My favourite use for this is to group my YouTube clips for topics. Not only are they played back with less distractions, but I can share a group of links for revision or to flip a lesson. Again, if I have to teach online, one link can lead to many. Just remember to check your school's policy on using websites such as YouTube for online teaching. If you have access to devices in the classroom, why not try Mentimeter? Create interactive presentations, take votes or build word clouds from participants' answers to improve engagement, assess learning and inspire discussion. Or, if you love whiteboard, Boards, try whiteboard.fi. As a teacher, you can see all your class's whiteboards and answers, know who's interacting and who's not. You can even show a QR code for ease of joining. I could go on and on. The idea is to test these things out when you're with your class and there's no pressure. Then, should you need to teach online, you'll feel more comfortable, there'll be fewer issues, and most importantly, you'll see if pupils are engaging. I hope you consider bringing a bit of tech into your classroom. As always, please test things work in your setting before you use them. For a visual version of this episode, check out the TT Radio 2022 Twitter feed. I'm Steve Woods, and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods. Your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Welcome back. I'm here with Cathy Murphy of Vikings UK talking living history and the value of reenactment in bringing history to life. In the first part of the show, we discussed what Vikings UK does and how it goes into schools and into various public venues to engage the public with Viking history and Viking culture. And in this next part of the show, I thought we'd explore the notion of what Vikings can bring to our understanding of British values, something, of course, that we're required to deliver in schools in England as part of the national curriculum. So, Cathy, I wonder if you had any thoughts on what the Vikings might have to say for us in terms of British values, what their values were in the time before 1066, and how children might benefit from learning about those today. Well, I'm not sure about the values of the Vikings and how helpful that would be. There are some, I think there are some elements of that. Perhaps we can come to come onto that at the end, as you suggest, Christopher. One thing I wondered it might be interesting to think about is the concept of being English or being British um, and how the Vikings helped to shape that concept. Um, because, well, just as a, a sort of a, an example of um, of this and what children perhaps sometimes assume, um, but which when you explore it with them, they, they realise that their assumptions are not um, as they thought. Um, when I'm working in key stage two um, classrooms, I begin my work with a, a, a big map of the British Isles and I ask them to, to name, you know, put place names on um, the North Sea always is in the middle of the map. You can see Scandinavian countries and so on. So the North Sea is at the centre of the story. And I ask them to name the countries around. And when they've done that, I then say, right, we're going to turn the clock back now to a time just before the Vikings uh, arrived in our, in our country. And then I proceed to, to take off all of the labels around the uh, the British Isles and say, well, you know, they, they, these names that we use today um, were not used then just before the Vikings came. Um, mm. So back then, if you just said, I'm English or I come from England, 
people would have looked at you and said, well, where, where is that? I don't know where, you know, where are you from? We don't know. Um, so one of the first things I think to get across when, when children start studying Vikings is to ensure that they understand that our nation was split up into multiple different kingdoms and each of those different kingdoms had their own king many had their own law systems many fought against each other um you know and there are some situations where you know there's marriage between the royal family of one kingdom and another to to sort of broker peace um so getting the idea that uh you know where i live in the country um I would have said I'm I'm a I'm a proud East Anglian. You would you would have said I'm a Northumbrian. Well, I, I was originally a West Saxon. I'm oh well, were you? Okay, well perhaps yeah. <laughs> Alfred's kingdom. Absolutely. So but I've, I've nearly converted. Nearly converted. Yeah. Well, again, I'm an adopted East Anglian, so um, I've started off life as a Mercian, I think. So um, you know, it's that idea that that the way that we I, you know, we sh we show our identity. We explain our identity today would have been very different back then. Um, and really, the concept of those four main kingdoms—if um, you think of uh, Wessex, East Anglia, Northumbria, Mercia—being the the four sort of constituent strongest uh, kingdoms at the time, just before the Vikings invaded. Mm. They, even though um, Athelstan. Uh, who was King Alfred's uh, grandson, even though in the mid-10th century, oh, sorry, early 10th century, he, he, he did rule over all four of those kingdoms and up into, um, into Scotland as well. He, he was even you know, brave enough to call himself the king of all Britain. But even though he had conquered all four kingdoms that make up England today, he, they were still known as the separate kingdoms. They weren't known as one entity. So, Yeah, um, how do they respond to that when you tell them this? Well, they're slightly nonplussed, to be honest, because they, they think that um, England is something which has always been. And, of course, it hasn't. It hasn't always been. Um, people describe themselves... You know, in Alfred's time, uh, which was, you know, mid to late ninth century, people described themselves as English, but they didn't relate that to the land of England. So back then, uh, the term English was basically a way of differentiating yourself from a Dane. Mm. So there's lots of laws which talk about the English and the Danes. Uh, there being different laws in the Dane law um, and uh, to the ones which were being used in East Mercia and, and Wessex at the time. So um, English was a way of just saying the people who aren't Danes, if you like, um, mm -hmm. the people who were Angles. Um, uh, and, and King Alfred himself called himself um, the king of the Anglo-Saxons. So he was, again, trying to unite the people who called themselves Saxons as well. Um, and it wasn't until we get to King Knut, um, who was, of course, a Dane, conquered us in 1016, and created then a kingdom 
which was made up of these four original kingdoms, you know, Mercia and so on. But for the first time, nearly a thousand years ago, just over a thousand years ago, in 1020, we get a letter written by Knut, which refers to Ingleland as a uh, as a as a place, the land, rather than the people. Mm-hmm. So it was a Dane. It was an outsider. Somebody was talking about this new land I've conquered, um, and uh, he was the first one to call it England. So that the um, the sort of uh, the the uh, pedigree uh, of England goes back almost exactly um, a thousand years. Uh, before then, we would have thought of ourselves very much as being from the separate kingdoms. Um, and I guess even though Knut was calling us England, calling our land England, um, there were still earls in charge of each of those four kingdoms. So that uh, that sort of heritage, if you like, uh, didn't didn't fade away quickly. It, uh, it it lasted some time. So that that feeling of um, you know we have to be defined by a foreigner before we see ourselves. Um, you know, before we start to see ourselves as living in England and as English people. Yeah. Mm. And how tolerant were the Vikings then of difference within these different regions of the country? Well, um, that in itself is is a very interesting question because um, uh, you, I'm sure you'll have heard of, of Athelred the Unready, poor old Athelred with his dodgy nickname. Um, he, um, in the beginning of the um, 11th century in in, uh, 1002 he got so suspicious of the Danes you know he'd been fighting against them for years and years um, and he felt that they were going to uh, rebel against him and plot against him so in 1002 he ordered that every Dane in his land should be murdered Um, that was on the 13th of November um, which was a Friday, which is where we get our unlucky Friday the 13th from. Hey. St. Bryce's Day Massacre um, mm. took place in in in, uh, in 1002. So Athelred, the, the, the Saxon king, the king of, um, of Wessex and, um, the, and you know, the, holding the power in, in the south and the west there, he had shown himself to be incredibly intolerant um, of Danes. We, we know that in some places, probably not in the Dane law, you know, in, not in the uh, in the east side of the country, but certainly in, in Oxford, there's archaeological evidence of um, of uh, a, a group of people who's um, in a, uh, you know, a, a mass grave, essentially, um, which which goes uh, is, is entirely parallel with the, with the timing of the St. Bryce's Day massacre. So. With that as a sort of um, precursor, um, Canute would have to go some, really, to be less tolerant um, <laughs> than Athelred had been. Um, what he was trying to do when he took over England was to show that um, despite the reputation of his father, who was Sven Forkbeard, one of the coolest Viking nicknames I think we've got in our history they did Um, do nicknames well didn't they oh absolutely yeah definitely so um sven had uh had you know had you know conquered i think he managed a 
about six months in charge and then then he died and everything went uh, went back to English leaders. But then when Knut came and reconquered us, there was a some rather horrible episodes in the run up to that with um, him cutting off tongues and hands and things. Um, but once he had conquered um, our country, he was then basically nabbed by the uh, by the uh, Archbishop of Canterbury at the time, um, who said, "If you're gonna if you're gonna do this, then you've got to be, you've got to show everybody that you are a good Christian king." So that's what he attempted to do. And the two main legends that we get um, for, about King Knut, uh, the one about the waves. Um, I'm sure everybody knows that story. Um, poorly told by the Victorians because in the original version, um, Knut uh, told the waves to turn back. And of course, they didn't. And what he was trying to show to his courtiers was God is the is the king of all. You know, God controls the waves. I don't basically stop toadying up to me. God's the real power. Um, mm-hmm. So that was the the original story. Um, so he was really trying to push his Christian credentials. Um, and in doing that, he wanted to show that he was fair, that he his law was going to be applied in the same way to the English and to the Danes. So there was going to be one rule for everybody um, mm. from Canute, which hadn't hadn't been done previously. There'd been a different rule in the Dane law a different rule in Wessex and, and East Mercia. So, you know, Knut really did um, make the first steps, if you like, um, towards us having one law that everybody had to follow um, and, you know, creating concepts like um, uh, the, ki- the, uh, the, the, the king's peace. So the king's duty was to keep God's peace um, in the land. And he was, you know, that was his duty given by god which is one you know that idea of the king's peace goes on for a very long time into into our history Mm, i was going to ask actually what kind of pressures did the christianization of the vikings put on this sense of the vikings having a unique culture and social structure yes well that I think the reason the pressure for Christianization in the Viking world, when you sort of look across the North Sea to Scandinavia, was very much about the connection of Scandinavia to the rest of Europe. So it was it wasn't so much as a um, it wasn't so much of a religious thing. It was more of a political and economic choice. So again, another great nickname. Um, of a Viking king was um, Harold Bluetooth. Um, so he was king in Denmark. And I mean, you'll, you'll recognize the word Bluetooth and it, it's taken from this guy, Harold. So our modern Bluetooth, um, you know, connecting lots of ele- ele- um, d- devices over um, uh, over the airwaves. I'm sorry, I'm not particularly technical. You probably can, uh, can tell that. But it's probably that, the one rune everyone recognises. Well, that's right. That is right. So um, Harold was was the king of, of, um, of uh, Denmark and uh, he and Sweden. So he united areas there. He pulled them all together. And of course, Bluetooth technology does the same between different ele- electrical devices. So he was the one who said of himself on his own sort of gravestone, 
I was the one who brought Christianity to the um, to the to the, 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 the to the Danes to the people of Denmark, and it was very much about connecting up with the rest of the world and trade and you know all that political those political machinations that go on um, behind these things. Very similar to the way that Knut was trying to say, "I'm a good Christian. Um, I can you know I can be a good king for you." Um, so he was trying to be more Christian than his um, Saxon predecessors in many ways, probably to make up for cutting off people's hands and tongues early, earlier in his career. <laughs> so they, they, they stumble across the idea of the king's peace, perhaps, by yeah. accident then. Um, is, weren't the Vikings perpetually at war most of the time, though, or is that generally a misconception? Well, I, I think that in, in the way that... Um, England was made up of different kingdoms of people. We can't really see the Danes or the Swedes as a, you know, they weren't a sort of unitary body. They were essentially, when we were invaded by the Vikings, it wasn't a Viking king, Danish king saying, come on, chaps, let's go off to Lindisfarne. It was lots of different independent ship's captains who were, um, you know, taking a chance, basically. Um, I've got an idea. I know this place over here. I've traded there before. I know there's monks there. Let's head over. Um, and so you've got these independent ship's captains and their um, renown, their um, wealth grows. And as that happens, then armies start to form. So if you think about um, the t- real turning point in, in the sort of Viking colonisation of uh, of of England, um, but bearing in mind the anachronism of that term at this point, mm. um, was in the eight was in the eight fifties um, into the eight sixties, where for the first time, I think it was eight, it was in the either eight sixty four, eight sixty five, um, the Viking ships captains said, "We're not going home. We're not going back to Denmark this winter. We're going to stay here because we're planning a campaign and." This um, army, the, the, the ship's captains were so so renowned, they were doing so well on the raiding front, that lots of other ship's captains came to join them. And so we get this build-up of an enormous number of troops. Um, they think 6,000 Viking troops overwintering in Thetford Forest in East Anglia in the winter of 864 into 65. And th- this great army the great heathen army. Um, Then in the spring, split into two groups. One went north, one went south. Um, The army that went south went to Hassel Alfred in Wessex, led by King Guthrum. The one that went north um, went headed up to York. Um, And, you know, we've got that sort of two-pronged attack then. Um, And the, uh, you know, the, the English kingdoms were basically saying which way they're going to go oh thank goodness they're not coming towards us you know Mm. they would they were not working together Uh, they were not supporting each other against this this sort of new threat if you like um while would you um again this is a bit of a pet story for me but while we're in east anglia at the Mm -hmm. time of the great heathen army um i'd just like to mention um king edmund so King Edmund is king of the East Angles and he was martyred by the Danes. So he was 
He was defending his kingdom against this great heathen army. Uh, and he was martyred in, in 869. So right at the end of that um, sort of, well, just before Alfred sort of kicks off in Wessex, really. Um, but King Edmund was martyred. His body was, well, there's a fantastic story about his head being cut off and a wolf finding the head and, you know, some great hagiography going on there. Mm-hmm. Um, but his body was taken to what is now Bury St. Edmund's. And St. Edmund became um, so revered as a saint, as a, a, you know, a kingly saint, that he became the patron saint of, of England and he stayed the patron saint of England until he was displaced by St. George, who was brought back to England by the crusading knights. Mm. So I think it was Henry the, it was either Henry the second or third um, who, who sort of instituted um, St. George. So that, that East Anglian king who'd fought against the Vikings was our patron saint. And to be honest, I think there's a lot to be said for for going back to King Edmund, you know, St. Edmund as our patron saint, at least let's have somebody who was born in our country and didn't kill off any rare animals. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> so if we think about if we think about the Vikings and the way their society is structured, you, you mentioned in the first part of our show that the role that women um, mm-hmm. played in Viking society. I wondered if you might say a little bit more about that for our listeners. Yeah, sure. I mean, this is this is a fascinating, um, fascinating topic because, you know, people always ask, well, you know, did the women do that? Did they do that? Usually, usually it's, you know, did they fight or not? Um, and, you know, how how did they feel about the roles that they did? Um, and I think these questions are so difficult to answer Um Obviously, archaeology is giving us more and more evidence for things. Um, the, the crossover between science and archaeology, you know, some of these really fruitful um, p- pieces of joint working that are, that, are, that are happening with, you know, people who can tell you where somebody grew up or, you know, where, what um, sort of diet they had from looking at DNA, looking at isotope analysis and, you know, all these sorts of things we can tell. So we're, we're finding out a lot more about people. We can certainly sex skeletons um, very reliably now if we have good skeletal remains. So this is really throwing open a lot of um, interesting archaeological evidence for us, which forces us to, to rethink um, the, role, the role of women, uh, where women came from, you know, the mobility of women, and and perhaps the roles that that they had as well. Um, one of the activities I do again when I go into schools is a, um, a sort of excavating a grave activity. Um, and what I do for that is I have a cloth skeleton on the floor with you know grave goods placed around it, and then I put cloth layers of cloth on top. And there's you know the children take off the layers, and underneath each layer there's something new to find, um, really to explore. The discipline of archaeology and, and things like, um, you know, things that will decompose in the ground and things that won't um, mm. so that children can start to grasp, you know, why would a pot be left? But somebody's clothes wouldn't, uh, you know, those sorts of things. So we go through that. And then at the bottom, once we've dug through the layers, there's then a skeleton 
And on the skeleton, I always place um, uh, a, a silver um, sort of a, a wristband, armband, like a bracelet, I suppose. Um, and I also place um, some beads at the neck of the skeleton. I just put th three or four beads at the neck. And when we've explored the different objects in the grave, I always ask the children, do they think we found a man or a woman uh, in the grave? Because, you know, all, all the other objects are perhaps a knife or some coins or, um, you know, things that are a cup, those sorts of things that could be used by, um, used by anybody. But when I ask them, do you think we found a man or a woman, they always jump to the sort of stereotype of our time that a woman today might be more likely to wear a bracelet and a woman would be more likely to wear beads. So this must be a woman. Interesting. But in the grave, I also place a, uh, a shield boss. Now, this is the metal dome, like a dish, that goes on the front of a wooden shield. So once we've talked about the fact that the wood of the shield would have decomposed and just the metal boss, boss is left, mm. um, the children are then often confused by the fact, oh, we've got a male item, so they're assuming shield equals warrior, mm. uh, but we've got these female objects in there. Um, and they're always quite fascinated to find out that when the archaeologists go back and look at some of these graves that were excavated with shields um, in the you know Victorian period, early 20th century and so on, they were often uh, described as male graves because they had a shield in them so it was sort of attribution by object if mm. you like um, however uh, there's been a, an interesting study in the in the uh, Cambridge area uh, relatively recently where archaeologists have gone back and checked out these bones that were buried with shields um, and discovered that a significant proportion of them sort of one in five were women with shields so some children say oh they, they must have been warriors then now we can't say that we can't it's complicated, say isn't it, it is it is because um what what could well have happened is that there was something else going on in the heads of the mm. people who were doing the burying that meant that they wanted to place a shield with a female relative or friend um, and then the children start thinking, well, what could that have been? And usually they come up with an idea like it's about protection or it's about sending somebody safely on their journey with protection. You know, so a husband or brother might place a shield in the in the grave to to protect their their relative. And, you know, these these ideas are all great. But I always have to say to the children, we, we are never going to know because archaeology is great at solid things, you know. We can see mm. the objects people had, but what we can't tell from archaeology is what people were thinking. And we've just got to, one of the things I re, re, always like to stress to children is we can never be sure what people were thinking. We can make some guesses, um, you know, how were they using an object or why had they put that in the grave or, you know, all these sorts of things we can guess, but we, we can never be sure um, because we can't tell how people thought. We can only guess at that.
And I suppose this is where the reenactment comes in, isn't it? Yeah. It can help you make better guesses potentially right. if you see these people at work with that's the same right. tools or at work with the same skills. Yes, that's right. And we, we you know, we can often test out um, objects uh, to, to try to, to work out how they could have been used. Um, one of the um, most fascinating objects uh, that we, we've got, it's a, it's a woman's object, um, from slightly earlier period, so from the uh, migration period, Saxons, is, a, is something called a girdle hanger. And if you imagine a T upside down with a loop at the top, a T shape, um, a two of those together on a, on a little loop. The, the women wear these. So many people think, oh, they look like keys or, um, you know, something for hanging something off, that sort of thing. You know, we've tried all sorts of things to, to work out what could the practical use of these quite large metal objects have been. Now, some of them are really quite big, you know, mm. four or five inches long. Um, you know, there's a lot of material gone into that, a lot of effort, a lot of skill gone into making it. So why was it so important? Um, what was it for? So again, that's been a fascinating um, process um, of trying trying lots of different things out with these objects and trying to work out if there was a practical purpose for them. Um, and I must admit, my <laughs> after all this, you know, trying hanging bags off it, and I can remember once plucking a plucking a chicken and trying to put the bag off these hanging these girdle hangers to see if you you know it did it help hold the bag open or something um didn't make any progress at all there was always an easier way to do it mm -hmm. so um you know it's just about exploring what the objects were and my my favorite theory is that they were a, a status symbol they were you know you wore them to show you were important you were in charge of the things that needed locking up um a sort of stylized key shape but, uh, you know, somebody else will come up with another theory one day. Yeah, and the fact that we've got <laughs> some artefacts to look at That's enables right. us to be as creative with our imagination as perhaps our right. ancient and, ancestors were. And that's what children are so good at. You know, they'll look at something and come up with an idea you never would have thought of. Um, yeah. It's always a pleasure asking children those questions where you say, we really don't know the answer. Your yeah, answer could be right. Something for the future archaeologists to keep Absolutely. working on. Yeah, that's it. Brilliant. That's a very interesting account indeed of the way in which the kind of sense of what we have of a sense of what we have in our mind as England mm. has kind of changed yeah. um, and has kind of almost forgotten this big space in our past that existed before the Normans turned up. That's right. Um, we're going to go to the, our second uh, news break now. And then when we come back, Cathy, we'll have a think about this idea of Viking wisdom, perhaps think over some extracts from the Horvamal and see what it might point us to for the future. Does that sound good? Sure, yep. Perfect. We'll be back straight back after the news. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources including webinars, 
podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.weatherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. Are you looking to take your phonics practice forward? Then Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised is the programme for you. Created by two schools with an excellent track record in phonics, Little Wondle Letters and Sounds Revised will help all children become readers and ensure no child is left behind. The programme offers complete support for your phonics teaching, alongside classroom resources and fully decodable readers from Collins Big Cat. To find out more, follow at Letters Sounds on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram or join a free briefing by visiting littlewondelettersandsounds.org.uk. Whatever learning looks like this year, bring lessons to life with Nearpod. An exciting new addition to the Renaissance family, Nearpod offers real-time insights into student understanding through interactive lessons and videos, gamification and activities, all in a single, easy-to-use platform. To help kickstart the new year, we're offering all primary and secondary schools in the UK and Ireland full free access to Nearpod for the whole spring term. So, no matter what 2022 brings, Nearpod makes switching between in-class and remote teaching simple. Visit www.renlearn.co.uk forward slash Nearpod and sign up for your free trial today. If you're listening to this, then we know we share one thing in common, a passion for the type of outstanding education that every child deserves. That's what makes us the leading provider of specialist education and care. We need people like you to help us achieve even more. With us, you'll be given all the resources and support you need, offered a clear path to career progression, and be rewarded with some of the best salaries and benefits the industry has to offer. We are with a Slack Group. If you'd like to find out more, we'd love to hear from you. Visit www.withaslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers and be part of our future. This is Teachers Talk Radio and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. A report in The Independent makes it clear that Ofqual's chief regulator believes that changes to the 2022 examinations will not advantage more able pupils. As a result of the disruption caused by the pandemic, pupils in England and those students sitting GCSE from English exam boards will be offered a choice of topics in some GCSE exams. In a speech to the Sixth Form Colleges Association conference earlier in January, Chief Regulator Joe Saxton said the release of advance information on the kinds of topics pupils will see in their exams would not advantage higher ability pupils. This advance information is due on February the 7th and is being released to help students focus their revision to answer questions carrying more marks. It will not be provided for simpler one or two mark questions. In a statement, Ms Saxton said that she hoped that the advance information will mean students who suffered the most disruption or those who are less able may gain confidence to tackle elements of the paper that they might not previously had the confidence to try. In response to the comments, Jeff Barton, General Secretary of ASCO said, many school leaders will have legitimate concerns about how the advance information about exam content has been put together and how helpful it is likely to be to their students. 
Radio 1 presenter Vic Hope has returned to a former school in Newcastle to open its new wellbeing centre. In a report on the ITV News website, it is described how Ms Hope opened the centre at Dame Allen's in Fenham by stating, it's been important to me in my work to raise awareness, destigmatize, and signpost resources dedicated to nurturing the psychological and emotional well-being of our young people. And I am so proud that the Dame Allens is clearly doing this work so well too. Ms Hope is a human rights activist and Amnesty International ambassador, and has spoken candidly about mental health in the past. The Snug at Dame Allens offers counselling, psychotherapy, and special educational needs support and provides a dedicated place where students feel safe, heard and understood. With mental health and well-being now a key focus for many schools, Ms Hope praised the efforts made by schools to support pupils in this way. The news website Monitor reports on lessons the continent of Africa can learn about investing in education. It states that the universal lesson is that countries can no longer ignore the unprecedented learning crisis facing the continent. The pandemic has revealed what the article describes as alarming inequalities in accessing inclusive and quality education. The issue was discussed by leaders at the Global Education Summit, co-hosted by Kenya and the UK in London last week. The continent is facing some harsh realities and the summit launched a drive to increase national budget allocations for education, with greater emphasis on improving learning outcomes. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio Weekend News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week we're going to take a look at teaching online. Marmite comes to mind when I think about teaching online. I actually like it, but it's my job and I'm surrounded by gadgets to assist me. A lot of teachers hate it. If you think about it, for 90% of the current population of teachers, delivering a lesson online is something they've not even been trained in. They signed up to be in the classroom with a group of pupils. I'm not going to go into the depths of the delivery platform. That's normally a choice that's already made for you by technology leaders in schools. I'm going to give you a couple of free tools that work in a browser, so don't need installing and can be used for engagements in the classroom and easily adapted to use online. First up, we all love Kahoot. Did you know you can set a Kahoot to be self-paced rather than live? Simply click the assign button and you have an instant self-paced quiz for a homework, a starter or a progress check. If you need to take it online, share the link and off you go. If you use lots of YouTube clips and websites, check out Wakelet. Share collections of links in a meaningful way for free. My favourite use for this is to group my YouTube clips for topics. Not only are they played back with less distractions, but I can share a group of links for revision or to flip a lesson. Again, if I have to teach online, one link can lead to many. Just remember to check your school's policy on using websites such as YouTube for online teaching. If you have access to devices in the classroom, why not try Mentimeter? Create interactive presentations, take votes or build word clouds from participants' answers to improve engagement, assess learning and inspire discussion. Or, if you love whiteboard, try whiteboard.fi. As a teacher, you can see all your class's whiteboards and answers, know who's interacting and who's not. You can even show a QR code for ease of joining. I could go on and on. The idea is to test these things out when you're with your class and there's no pressure. Then, should you need to teach online, you'll feel more comfortable, there'll be fewer issues, and most importantly, you'll see if pupils are engaging. I hope you consider bringing a bit of tech into your classroom. As always, please test things work in your setting before you use them. For a visual version of this episode, check out the TT Radio 2022 Twitter feed. I'm Steve Woods, and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods. Your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Great, welcome back. Well, it's good to hear from some of our listeners here in the chat. 
TSCW says that they're enjoying the show and they don't have any particular questions, but they're particularly enjoying learning and listening to your account of the Viking Age. So I'm here with Kathy Murphy from Vikings UK. And in our closing 15 minutes or so, we're going to be reflecting on the idea of Viking wisdom. Is there anything that we can gain from either the Viking way of life that may <clears throat> give us some kind of wisdom that we can pass on to children in our schools, or even from the Viking literature? And I'm thinking here particularly of the Horvamol, uh, a text, essentially a composition made up of lots and lots of different proverbs or, or sayings of wisdom that society used to guide them when they were encountering particularly challenging dilemmas. Is that a reasonable uh, description of that text, would you say, Cathy? Uh, yes, I think absolutely it is. It's, uh, um, it's probably one of the, the pithiest ways we can get to the sort of moral under, uh, um, you know, uh, undercurrent of, of the way that our Viking ancestors thought. Um, I think it's worth noting as well with the, the Havamal that the, the sayings collected in it are said to be um, the sayings of the high one, which is what the, the word means, sayings of the high one. The high one in question is is Odin. Um, and Odin, the one-eyed god, um, was renowned for having given his eye uh, to the, into, the, the, into Mimir's well, the well of wisdom, uh, in order to gain wisdom. So he sacrificed his eye to get wisdom. And he's called amongst many, many other things. He is called the wise one. Um, and any reference to him being one-eyed is usually referring to the fact that he's got this great wisdom. Um, mm. So um, even though the sayings read to us like like proverbs, I think for our Viking ancestors, they, the sayings would have had more to them than just, oh, this is a good way to live. You know, this was a, a saying from the wise God uh, who... who um, who spoke those you know these these words so i've picked out a couple to share with our listeners who might not be familiar with them um the two favorite ones i've selected are cattle die kinsmen die all men are mortal words of praise will never perish nor a noble name and the second one i particularly like is never walk away from home ahead of your axe and sword you can't feel a battle in your bones or foresee a fight. How would, how would they have used these in, in practice, I wonder? Well, I think probably the one which I guess people would jump to most readily would be the, your first one, the, the one about a man's reputation. Um, so the, the idea that you, cattle are, are referred to in, in the saying there as, as a possession, you know, something which shows your wealth. So if you have lots of cattle then you are a wealthy man. If you have lots of kinsmen, people who will you know, vouch for you, who will be loyal to you, um, again, that gives you high status in society. But both of the, the, the saying says both of those things are, are passing. Um, we can't rely on those things. But what will last forever is a man's, is a man's reputation. So there, I'm sure anybody who's, who's ever heard a, um, a Viking um, uh, saga or, uh, you know, got the idea of Vikings being 
proud or even perhaps seen on the Vikings TV program, people toasting each other or praising each other. It's that culture of you build somebody's reputation because when you speak of them, um, they're with you somehow, whether they are here in the flesh or not. So the idea Mm. that a, a man's reputation, a person's reputation lives on, their deeds live longer than their and their life might last um and i think that's that's pretty powerful stuff um i think you know many of us will uh, again if you think about our uh, our own friends and family perhaps or think about people in wider society you remember the things that people have done you remember the good deeds that they've done um and those things will will, will be the things that keep you talking about them will keep will keep their memory alive. So I think the Vikings were definitely onto something there. Um, yeah, I mean, we still have that, don't we, I suppose, yeah. in our libel and defamation law, this sense that yes. reputation is something that can be lost and yeah. the suffering that goes with that loss can be immense. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, does, this, yes. does this sense of reputation diminish after Christianity or does it just take a new form? Uh, that's that's a really good question. Um, but my um, understanding there is that no, it it it, it doesn't diminish. It it keeps the, um, it you know keep it, it stays important. If you think about um, uh, the sort of uh, Celtic bards, uh, you know, later on into the Middle Ages, whose job it was to sing the praises of, um, you know, the great the great folk heroes, the Owen Glendowers, and all of those. You know the um, that 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 tradition of singing the praises of somebody, um, you know, the court poet, if you like, um, it, it is very much still, well, still around today. I, I I would have thought, you know, as a way of praising somebody. Um, yeah, certainly is. I mean, if I think I used to have that first quotation on my wall in my last mm. school, um, I I now have a different quotation on my wall in my current school, which is which is a Roman Catholic school, the yeah. quotation I have on my wall now is, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the mm. word was God. But we talk about the value of our words and the power of our words all of the time. Mm. And it seems to me that if I can cultivate one thing in my students, it's that they carry this reputation out with them into the world and that it's a good reputation and they use mm. it for building the good reputation of others. Yes. I would be pleased if I was a, Christianized Viking and my students were going off to do that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think if you think about you know young people's lives today and the idea that reputation is something which which is built through deeds um, and and lasts, uh, it, you know it it is important as you said it does last. If you think about that compared with a um, a sort of you know liking culture where you, you you're looking for how many likes you've got on social media or whatever i think that this idea of your reputation being something which is above that which which has got a life beyond that um and that it's more than the sort of flash in the pan of um of, of sort of easy social interactions on social media um so what metrics would the vikings have you would the vikings have used then for measuring this success measuring this sense of lasting fame well that that would it all be physical uh, i i don't think so no um what sprung to mind when you've said that um actually 
wasn't a Viking, but was somebody who fought against the Vikings. Um, uh, a man named Brithnoth, who fought against the Vikings at the Battle of Molden in mm. 991. So he was um, the uh, the elderman of Essex. He was out there to defend his people against the uh, against the marauding Vikings, the um, uh, uh, um, the Ragnarsons. So uh, people might be aware of uh, you know, Ragnar Lothbrok. He's you know Viking TV series. He's on that. But his sons came and attacked at the end of the 10th century. And, and old Brithnoth, who was an old man at the time, um, was charged with keeping them off from the, 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 the coast of Essex. And the, the Battle of Maldon, the poem, which we amazingly have fragments of passed down to us, um, says that he was uh, overmoder, which means, um, well, people, people debate the, um, the translation but it's either too um, too nice, you know, over um, in, in too good a mood, or hmm. it means foolhardy. So this idea that his his reputation of, of being a man who who was prepared to let the Vikings across the causeway at Malden and let them fight um, on a fair ground, if you like. Um, People said, "Oh, he was foolhardy to do that," but other people say, "No, that was his. That was his fairness coming out. That was him saying, no, let them let them ashore. We'll fight a fair fight with them.' And um, and, and his, his reputation, obviously, in through the poem, has has lasted for for over a thousand years. So perhaps he was doing something right, old Brithnoth, even if he did make a bit of a tactical military error. But, mm. uh, <laughs> what do you think the Vikings would make of 2021? Um, I think they'd be astounded by the, um, the, the lack of frugalness um, that we are so used to. You know, their, their idea of, you know, they used everything. They didn't waste anything. And your, your survival was dependent on, you know, using every bit of the of the animal that you slaughtered, using the bones and the fat and the skin and, you know, everything, everything had a purpose. Um, I think they would be quite horrified by our throwaway, throwaway culture. Um, because we, you know, we don't use everything. We don't use all the food. We throw away so much food. We don't um, eat seasonally. We, you know, I think that excess, I think, would have would be the thing that would surprise them most, perhaps jar most with them. I don't know. Mm, I'm feeling more optimistic about us moving back towards more seasonal ways of yes. living. Yes. I think perhaps the Vikings may be happier if, if they came back to visit us in 2030, perhaps yeah, I'm, in 2021. I'm happy, to happy to share your optimism, Christopher. <laughs> well, Cathy, it's been an absolutely wonderful evening talking to you about the Vikings and about their uh, Anglo-Saxon rivals in England. Um, our listeners, I hope, have enjoyed it as much as I have. Um, I hope you've enjoyed it too. I have, certainly very much. And uh, uh, I would say to anybody who's uh, living in the UK and wanting a Viking visitor, do uh, have a look at our um, Vikings UK website. Um, we are running a big festival in the um, in the summer in June, where we have a, a, a whole day set aside for school children to come along. So, we'd be very happy to see anybody um, who is interested at, at that event.
Fantastic. Is there a particular age limit for children to get involved in specific events? Oh, well, that particular one is aimed at key stage two children, but all the other um, all the other events are open to, um, you know, we, we will adapt our provision if we're coming into school to meet the age and the needs of your children. Perfect. Cathy Murphy from Vikings UK, thank you very much again for your time tonight. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Christopher. Bye. Good night. Well, listeners, there we are. We have come to the end of another, well, the first late show on a Sunday evening. I do hope you will tune in again to join me on the fourth Sunday in February, where we'll be looking at something completely different. I'm not quite sure what we'll be looking at yet, but we're certainly looking at something. I've greatly enjoyed finding all about Anglo-Saxon England and Viking England tonight. I hope you have too. Just remains for me to say thank you again to our guests. Thank you again to those people who've been listening live and sending us texts. And I hope to speak to you all again around about this time next month. So thank you and good night. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.